Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. There seems to be a new pessimistic consensus in America, namely the economy of the past few decades has not delivered for most Americans. The conventional wisdom says that wages are stagnant, economic mobility has evaporated, and the middle class has been hollowed out. In short, the American dream is no longer available to regular Americans. But Michael Strain disagrees. He argues that America's economy still delivers for workers and that, while the country faces many challenges, populist policy will only make things worse. Mike is the John G. Searle Scholar and Director of Economic Policy Studies here at AEI. Previously worked for the U.S. Census Bureau and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He is also a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and he is the author of the upcoming book, The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It, which will be out at the end of the month. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. The final song on Bruce Springsteen's 1984 album, Born in the USA, his most commercially successful album, is My Hometown. It's a sort of nostalgic meditation on American decline. And I think this bit of it is most relevant for our conversation today. Now, Main Street's whitewashed windows and vacant stores seem like there ain't nobody wants to come down here no more. They're closing down the textile mill across the railroad tracks. Foreman says these jobs are going, boys, and they ain't coming back. I mentioned the boss because near the start of the book, your book, you write, Bruce Springsteen's songs are brilliant and moving, but most of us aren't characters in a Springsteen song. But that's not what I seem to read in the New York Times or hear from populist politicians on the left and right. The economic story they tell is that, at least since the release of that Springsteen album in the 1980s, the American dream has stopped working for most of us, and especially working-class men. They tell a tale of stagnation and inequality caused by incompetent or rapacious elites. And while we're going to dig into a number of these specific economic issues, I want to start by asking you, if there was some sort of common mistake that all these folks make, which has led them to their pessimism. I think that there are a, a number of mistakes. I mean, I think people naturally focus on the negative. You know, you you know, follow a ambulance uh, or a fire truck down the street, but you don't follow, you know, a, a wedding limousine. Down bad news sells. Bad news sells. Bad news sells. I think that people uh, recently have been confusing pockets of problems for the kind of broader picture of American life. You know, it is true that that there are uh, cities and towns that have been left behind by technological automation and by globalization, um, and that that's made life for people who live in those, in those places uh, a lot more difficult. But that is not the common experience. Uh, you know, that, that, that's happened to a minority of places. But the, the amount of focus... So it's not that, that it's happened to 99%, because you see the one versus 99%, and sort of part of that is saying that for, you know, for most people, things have gotten no better, if not worse, sort of decade after decade. Yeah, that's right. All right. Um, all right, well, let, let maybe start, uh, do a little bit of a definitional question. We're, just when we're talking about American dream, what, what are you talking about exactly? Well, it's a, hard, it's a hard concept to nail down, and it means different things to different people. Uh, in the book, I quote the New York Times as um, stating that a well-manicured lawn has often been considered central to the American dream, um, uh, just to 
illustrate the breadth of definitions. Uh, you know, of course, you know, a, a happy home life and and uh, a comfortable retirement and 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 uh, home ownership and you know, two cars in the in the, uh, in the in the in the driveway. These are all these are all parts of the American dream. The 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 component I focus on. Uh, the most is economic, and I think that that is at the heart of the American dream. You know, a, a chicken in every pot, um, the uh, ability of your children to do better than you, uh, generational progress, um, and uh, your own ability to advance in the labor market in the economy. That seems to me to be really the central part of of the american dream and and the part of the american dream that's like rising rising living standards rising and then we living can try standards. to find what that what that what that means mm-hmm. if it just means more more stuff or mm-hmm. you know bigger flash screens every year i don't know and dead it seems like that's a low bar so i think people want it alive and dead? thriving yeah dead so if it, dead is a low bar yeah dead is a low right. bar so just because the american dream isn't dead doesn't mean it's thriving mm-hmm. so how is it doing well, people, beyond having a pulse, people say it's dead. Uh, President Trump said it's dead uh, a few years ago, very directly. Uh, Bernie Sanders said the American dream has become a nightmare for many. Ray Dalio, the uh, billionaire investor, said that the American dream is lost. Tucker Carlson, just a few months ago, uh, said the American dream is dying, uh, and referred to the uh, great dark age in, in, in which we are living. Uh, so this is this is a um, this is a common statement, um, and uh, even people who don't say it's lost or dead will say it's fading, it's in decline. You know, and I and I think that's just wrong. I, I think that's well, well, analytically so, I mean, one, wrong. When people make that case, it seems to be that almost the number one thing they'll say has to do with what people earn, wages. They'll say mm-hmm. that wages since the 1970s haven't gone anywhere, mm-hmm. or if they have gone up. So minimally as to not even be noticeable. You disagree with that? I do. I think I think it I think it confuses um, uh, the reality. Uh, so you know, if you if you look at the behavior of of, of wages, um, you know, let's get a few preliminaries out of the way. First. Make sure we know who we're talking about. So what we're concerned about is sort of middle class. Not you know, we don't want some average number that's being distorted by people at the very top. It's sort of Median wages, middle class wages, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So if you look at if you look at the wages of what you might call typical workers, these are uh, workers in the services sector who are not managers uh, or supervisors, workers in the manufacturing sector who are production workers, workers in the construction sector who are construction workers. That group constitutes about eighty percent of all workers. And so look at those workers. If you look, if you look at their at their wages, you see a period of pretty rapid increase in their wages uh, following World War II uh, throughout the 1960s, mm-hmm. um, and then you get to the mid 1970s where things started to break down, and you did have a period of wage stagnation. Uh, you had a period of uh, you even had periods of declining uh, inflation-adjusted wages until the Early to mid 1990s. What, what, I mean, what happened in that period from, you know, between the immediate post war decades and 1990s that wages really didn't go anywhere in real terms? Well, part of, I mean, part of it was inflation. You know, it was a number of things, right? So we're talking about inflation adjusted wages. Right. So there was obviously a lot of inflation that, that ate into the purchasing power of wages. Um, uh, uh, there, there was not a period of, uh, of a, of a uh, uh, you know, great productivity surge like we saw in the 1990s. And, and of course, that helped. 
that help workers uh, uh, tremendously. Um, so, you know, a, a number of things. So you have uh, pretty rapid growth following World War II until, say, the early to mid-1970s, a period of stagnation uh, and even periods of decline from, say, the mid-1970s to the early to mid-1990s. And then you had uh, the current period we're in, where since July 1990, which was a business cycle peak, um, wages have grown by about one-third for this group of Again, typical that's a, workers. that's adjusted for inflation. Adjusted for inflation. And does that, is that inflation, does that include college costs, education costs, and health care costs? Yeah. We often will point into that these, these numbers don't include, that those inflation adjustments don't include health care and education, because we all see that those numbers, you know, a lot of people think have gone wild uh, and therefore, have eaten up all the wage gains. But yeah, no, that they, includes that. The, the, these, these numbers include those. Yeah, uh, and 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 so since the early 1990s, uh, wages have increased by by about a third. Um, that's a considerable increase in purchasing power. That meant that if your salary was $100, your salary is now $133. That's 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 quite a bit. Um, it's not as uh, rapid as the increases were for the top one percent. It's not, you know, something that we should. You know, pat ourselves on the back and say, "Okay." Was it more during those immediate post-war decades that wages go? That sort of wages for the typical worker go up faster back then, and I guess they did. Fifties and sixties, they did. I mean, you get into some. Yes, they did. You get into some. You know, the the further back you go, the harder it is to 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 account for inflation. Um, uh, but yes, I think it's safe to say that that wages did grow faster, and we should want wages to grow faster than 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 they have been growing, and we should be putting in place uh, uh, public policies to try and help wages to grow faster than they have than they have been growing. So I'm not saying we should be complacent. I'm simply saying that uh, a uh, one third increase in the purchasing power of wages for a typical uh, worker over the last 30 years is not stagnant. It's much closer to uh, steady, solid growth than it is to stagnation. How, do you have any idea like how that compares how other countries have done you know, since 1990 as well? I mean, would we be doing pretty well compared to other sort of rich, advanced economies or in the middle? Any idea? You know, I mean, it, 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 it depends on the kind of specific period that you're that you're looking at. I think people want to know is like, is that good? Is that good? Because it seems it's a number. And yes, you know, uh, you know, 34 percent, a lot better than 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 zero percent. But they, I guess people want to know that's is it good compared to all other countries have done? Is it good compared to how we've done in the past? I want some sort of frame of reference. Well, it's very good compared to the two decade period that came before it. You know, it's very good compared to, you know, say, you know, 1973 to 1993. And, uh, you know, whether it's good is is ultimately uh, subjective. You know, my, my argument is that it's not good enough and it's not uh, something we should be satisfied with. And we should be, you know, aggressively trying to help workers to be able to command higher wages in the labor market. But uh, it's not stagnant. You know, the, 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 if you are a, a worker, right. the, the truth of your situation is that you will see your wages grow. You will see your purchasing power increase. Uh, your hard work will pay off. Um, and you should have confidence about those things, uh, that, that, that if you work hard and put in effort and you know, make yourself more skilled and, 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 and try as hard as you can, that the labor market is going to reward that because that is, that is the typical experience. That is not what you hear from uh, elected leaders in both political parties. It's not what you hear from commentators. It's not what you hear from many, from many public intellectuals. It's the wrong message to be sending people. Um, you know, 1990s, you know, for me, 
It feels like that just happened for a lot of people. That's starting to, you know, maybe that's a long time ago. What about the 2000s, you know, maybe the period leading up to the 2016 election where, where supposedly that was, you know, that was really the triumph of, of populism. What did wages do in that decade leading up to, to Trump's victory in 2016? Well, so part of the argument that I advance is is exactly what you just said, that that the year 1990 is uh, pretty far in the rearview mirror right now. You know, when people hear politicians or, or commentators say that wages have been stagnant for decades, they think that uh, that uh, the reference is to their own wages. You know, if you go back to 1970, that's now that's now 50 years ago, and there were a whole lot of workers who were working today who weren't working in 1970. It's just not the right frame of reference. So, you know, it it is important, I think, to to underline. Uh, what you what you mentioned, which is that that 1990 was 30 years ago at this point. That was three decades ago. There 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 are many people in the labor market right now who weren't working in 1990. So I think so I think so 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 I think when we're when we're trying to characterize what's happening in the economy f- for workers, uh, you know I don't know that you want I don't know that you do want to go back 50 years to to make those comparisons. But how about how about the, how about that period? People would say, here's what happened: that leading up to 2016. Uh, you had a great recession. Even before that, you saw stagnant wages. Workers are angry, so they voted for the person who was saying that the elites have failed you. Vote for me. What did we see in, in wages during that period, sort of leading right up to it? Were they, were, were they was this a steady rise since 1990, or did most of those gains come during the sort of the internet boom? Uh, you know, it 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 it's a, it's a trend, um, and so there were. Years of uh, uh, below average wage growth, years of above average wage growth uh, during that time period. The years following the Great Recession were very disappointing for wage growth. Um, And, you know, part, I I think part of the explanation behind this surge of populism that's led to uh, uh, President Trump's election is the lackluster performance of the economy. Uh, you know what that did to people's pocketbooks, what that did to their expectations about the future, what that did to their psychology. Um, I think uh, uh, you know played a material role, and politicians in both parties have exploited that uh, anxiety and exploited that frustration for their own political gain. The president wants to say, you know, immigrants are to blame, China is to blame. Uh, you know the the elites who favor free trade, uh, and the elites who only care about GDP growth are to blame. Um, Democrats want to say uh, that it's you know Wall Street is to blame, and the top one percent is to blame, and the game is rigged, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the the anxiety and the frustration that have fueled populism on 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 both sides of the aisle have uh, their roots in the Great Recession, uh, which, you know, collided with longer-term, slower-burning trends. So for decades, we've been seeing technological automation affect the labor market, reduce the share of employment in uh, traditionally middle-skill, middle-class occupations. For decades, we've seen globalization. What kind of occupations are those? I like manufacturing jobs. Um, For decades, we've seen globalization put downward pressure on wages. These are these are longer term, slower burning trends. And the Great Recession collided with those and, and was like a gut punch. Um, and that created massive dislocation well, well, and but, but, real isn't, suffering. Isn't, what you said, isn't that exactly the case? That I mean the argument is that globalization particularly 
has sort of hollowed, hollowed out, I think that's the phrase, hollowed out the middle class over the past 40 years and created these you know, big chunks of America where people are left behind. Um, you know, maybe they have jobs, but they're not like the old jobs. These are, you know, the very low wage jobs. And that and so and that's the big complaint that it's been it's been globalization and trade and immigrants, and that kind of economic o- openness that has led to a disappearance of the American middle class. Yeah, that's 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 right. That's the narrative. Um, that alone is not enough to explain uh, populism and, and, and the rise of, of populist politics. But do you think that, that do you think that that's that that's the correct econ- economic explanation that you that we've. The middle class has disappeared, and the reason it's disappeared is because too much trade and too many immigrants. Uh, no, I think that's I think that I think that's not right. So it's it's certainly right that the um, kind of share of employment, uh, the share of overall employment that are in those kinds of traditional middle class, middle middle skill jobs has been decreasing over over many decades, uh, and is a lot uh, uh, less than it was say fifty years ago. Um, that's that's uh, uh, overwhelmingly due to technology and uh, and and, and uh, automation. Um, globalization, you know, likely played some role, but not nearly what uh, the um, kind of anti-free trade people uh, in the public uh, square right now would have you believe. Of course, that's not that's not the end of the story. Uh, and in 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 the book, I discuss the emergence of a new middle class. Mm-hmm. You know the the economy is dynamic, and so technology, you know, walks into a bank, and 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 the form it takes is an ATM. The ATM doesn't put the CEO of the bank out of work. The ATM doesn't put the lowest paid people in the bank out of work. You know the the custodians and and, and whoever else. But the ATM does pose a direct threat to cashiers, because cashiers would uh, engage in tasks that required precision, attention to detail, uh, following a set of steps precisely. Um, that's what you have to do to deposit a check. That's what you have to do to distribute you know, a $100 cash withdrawal. And those tasks had to be done uh, right over and over and over again. As a consequence, cashiers 50 years ago needed to have some skills. They didn't need to have as many skills as the CEO, but they but they but they needed to have more skills than 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 the lowest paid workers. So they were right there in the middle, and that's the kind of job that technology proved very amenable to replacing. Um, but that doesn't mean that we will live in a world where there are no more middle. Uh, skill where you have a complete bifurcated where everyone's yeah. either like uh, I don't know some sort of analyst uh, you know making you know well into six figures and everybody else are I don't know butlers mm-hmm. right isn't that it? that is going to be but so are these new middle jobs what are they and do they pay they do pay um, they they pay in the middle uh, and um, I think they pay like those you know you know people work in steel mills I think that that's the kind of economy. I think a lot of people think about that. We've lost that kind of manufacturing. Men would go there. And now you're saying we've replaced the factory jobs with, you know, personal care jobs or home health care jobs. Are those – and that, that's, those, aren't, those aren't jobs for men. We, 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 have, we, have, we have replaced uh, jobs that were heavy on physical labor with jobs that, are, that require more kind of interpersonal skills and, 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 and uh, uh, you know, those types of softer skills. In some cases, that's going to be harder for men than for others. But, you know, workers need to be willing to adapt to the changing economy that they face. 
and these are these are serious challenges. There's there's no question about that. But these are not insurmountable. Me that, that's challenges. been the message: is that you don't have to adapt. That that no longer will you be asked to adapt. You won't be asked to sort of change your skills. You won't be asked to move. Um, that what you do, you can always do it. That just doesn't seem. I'm not sure where in the world that's true. Yeah, where in the world if that's true that it hasn't been like a terrible place to live with a lot of economic stagnation. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I mean, I think the message that many that many people in in, in the white working class are hearing is is that message. Um and that's not the right message. I mean, first of all, things aren't as dire as you would think from listening to these uh, kind of pro-populist sources. Um you know, it is it is it is of course the case that some towns have been left behind, but the overwhelming majority of of towns that were disproportionate manufacturing centers in the early 1970s have successfully transitioned to new industry. How much of America is left behind America? It seems to me that that the story is that jobs are, jobs are offshored to other places, not to machine land, but to other countries, and therefore. Big chunks of America were you know, hollowed out, and that process, which maybe began in the 70s, got a lot worse with China um, being a bigger part of the world economy in 2000, and then you had sort of this collapse in the early 2000s where all the, all the jobs went to China, and these communities just never recovered. Yeah, it, it, look, it's the minority. Uh, you know, like I said, w- you know, well over half of, of of places that were that were disproportionate manufacturing centers um, in the early 1970s have successfully transitioned, and that's the guess uh, that we should be going forward with for the places that haven't. Another, should we? Have, I mean, should we have stopped that? I mean, should the, should we have not let China into like the global economy so those jobs? wouldn't have left and they would have stayed here in the United States. Would we be better? I think that that's the argument. That was the mistake, that we that we should have never forced American workers to, to compete with Chinese workers and we would be better off today if, you know, forget, you know, put aside the impact on China, that America would be better off today if we had not opened ourselves up to that kind of uh, trading relationship with China. Yeah, look, I think that's just wrong. Um, I mean, I agree with you that that's, that that's a narrative out there, but I think that narrative is, is just incorrect. The uh, the the aggressiveness with which China entered the global economic system proved to be disruptive. People uh, expected it would be disruptive, but I think that the degree to which it was disruptive has caught uh, many people uh, by surprise. Um, and public policy should do more to help workers who are who are going through uh, a time of transition. Um, you know, whether it's caused by China or not. But um, on the whole, trade has helped the United States. On the whole, trade has helped uh, the working class. Um, and the, you know, benefits of trade with China are much more diffuse uh, and, and harder to identify. Uh, the costs are much more concentrated. Uh, and, and again, public policy should help people who are who are hit by those kinds of by those kinds of transition, but uh, building walls around the United States and retreating from the global trading system. You were talking about those that thirty four percent figure, but with that thirty four percent figure in wage growth since nineteen ninety in real terms, would that have been higher if we had tighter borders, let in fewer immigrants, and done less trading with China and not and and not allowed companies to move jobs to China. Would that, would that, was that, is that depressing that 34% number, which you yourself have said you wish were better? My guess is it's, it's propping it up, not depressing it. So it might have been lower, is what you're saying, yeah. if, not, if, not, if not for the openness. Yeah. What makes you think that? 
Well, you know, a, a kind of first order effect of trade, uh, particularly with China, has been a lower prices for uh, consumer goods. Uh, the wage growth figures we talked about are, are adjusted for for inflation, and so when inflation is lower, then 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 the purchasing power of wages goes up. More than that, uh, the entire debate about trade and globalization, I, I think, gets the issue of jobs wrong. Trade is not about jobs. The uh, economy should be able to support people who want to work, whether or not the United States is doing a lot of international trade, doing a little amount of international trade. You know, the, the point of trade is to increase productivity, to allow American workers to do what they're best at on the whole and, and, and on balance, um, and to allow uh, businesses and, and firms and sectors to specialize. If you get that productivity increase, that's going to show up in wages. The time period we're talking about is 30 years. Right. And so and so that is a long enough time period for these types of effects to show up. You know, if you were to kind of, you know, zoom in to a particular five-year period where uh, the effects of trade with China were, you know, particularly concentrated, uh, could you see some some things that look different? Yeah, you 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 probably can. But uh, over the over the long haul, trade is about efficiency and it's about productivity. And but we haven't seen very good productivity for 15 years. We've been uh, having a hard time on that front. So does that mean, does that mean does that does that relationship no longer work? Where where all this openness was supposed to boost our productivity, but we haven't had great productivity for 15 years. Uh, some people might point that as saying, well, whatever the textbooks say, that's not what's been happening. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think uh, I think the the productivity slowdown is is one of the most serious challenges facing the United States today, and you know we gotta we gotta we gotta be serious about about how we can get th- that productivity up. I mean, you know, ultimately, I think. But trade, you still think trade is part of that solution, not part of the problem. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you look, I mean, I mean, I mean, look. The you know the 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 big story about the manufacturing sector is that is that it's uh, uh, shedding workers, right? At the same time, manufacturing output is increasing. So, you know, productivity is just output per hour of work, output per worker. So you see significant increases in manu- in in manufacturing productivity. You know, almost by definition, uh, you know, the the public debate concedes that point. Um, you know the 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 question is um, that you're talking about is the overall uh, economy wide rate of productivity and and you know that that's a, that's a serious concern. Uh, you know, part, certainly part of the American dream is sort of upward mobility, sort of you doing better than your parents and your kids doing better than you. What do we know for sure about? It? I mean, if I only again, if I I see headlines certainly in the New York Times and I'm sure elsewhere saying that it is mobility isn't what it used to be. That people are sort of stuck at a certain level and they just don't they just don't climb the way they used to. What do we know about that? Well, um, you know, there are there are two questions there, right? One one question is, do you know people uh, today have you know have 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 they have they done better than their parents? And the answer is overwhelmingly yes. Uh, if you look at a group of, you know, say 40-somethings today and compare that to their parents when their parents were 40-something years old, uh, family income is higher for three-quarters of them. For men, labor market earnings are higher for 60% of them. If you look— I've heard, I've heard lower numbers from other—I think other sources that, like, only half, if that. 
but you, your findings are different. My fi- my findings are, are are certainly different. Um, and you know, a lot of this, uh, uh, you know, you know, you end up in a kind of technical economic debate about. You know how you adjust for inflation, how you adjust. For the point is, I don't. Size. I feel like there isn't a debate. I'm not getting a sense by how these issues are covered by a lot of the media, certainly not all, that there isn't much of a debate. And that you know, so are they just not seeing this? Are they just not focusing on the right studies? Are they are are they only focusing on the sort of the bad news studies? I just, I just don't get a sense that there's a debate about any of these questions, whether it's wage stagnation or upward mobility or inequality. Yeah, I think um, uh, you know. I think I. Th- I mean, I mean. Look, that's frustrating to me. Um, you know. So you share that frustration. I share. I share that frustration with you. You know. I mean, take take inequality. If you look at um, the data that are produced by the Congressional Budget Office every year, income um, inequality is that what we're talking. Income about? inequality yep. um, on on household income. Uh, you see that over the last ten years or so, income inequality growth maybe has slowed to a crawl, or it has actually declined. Uh, if you look at the uh, kind of most expansive definition of income that the Congressional Budget Office produces, which uh, accounts for the fact that people pay taxes and, and, and receive government transfers, you see a 7% decline in uh, um, income inequality since the Great Recession. And I don't see that being discussed in in news articles and and you know I don't I don't see that being discussed uh um you know in the in the public square uh, to the extent that that, that that it should be what about wealth inequality I means I seem to hear a lot about that uh and it, that seems to be sort of the hot argument that you know a very small number of people own a lot more wealth than they did 20 or 30 years ago and if only that number were less if more then by by definition the rest of us would have more how concerned are you about sort of increasing wealth inequality? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not terribly concerned about increasing wealth inequality. I mean, you know, I think, I think this is a very kind of recent development in the public debate. You know, it's, you know, you know, it, 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 I mean, I don't, you'd be forgiven for suggesting that it feels like, you know, when the income inequality story started to look a little different, that all of a sudden we started focusing on, on wealth inequality. Um, Wealth and wealth, wealth inequality is a is a tricky subject. It's extremely difficult to to measure wealth. There's an active debate right now among economists about about how best to measure wealth, and, and different economists are coming up with wildly different uh, estimates. Um, and again, uh, this seems to be an issue which you're referring to. That there's some that there's a debate. There's ongoing research. We haven't reached some final steady state opinion. But yeah, again, what I again, what it seems to me, what I what I, what I mostly hear from the media is that there is a debate. They have that there are there are, there are a, uh, they've determined what the reality is, and everybody else is either wrong or they're you know they're phoning up numbers or something. Yeah, the, look, look, the media, the media has been disappointing on this front. I mean, I you know I was very surprised when the New York Times published uh, an analysis arguing that the United States essentially has a flat tax. Where the lowest income households are paying taxes at the same rate as the highest income households, except for the households at the very, very top, you know, where where the tax code actually becomes regressive, um, you know that that that's one example of many where I've been uh, I've been kind of surprised by by some of the reporting on on these issues. Populism, if I understand, what sort of the common element a lot in a lot of people who call themselves populists. 
It's that there should be that there's been too much disruption in societies and people are too at risk, whether it's from trade, uh, uh, whether it's from immig immigration. You know, they don't talk about it as much, but I also also get the sense that technology it's just too disruptive for people, and we need a society we'd be better off with less disruption. Do you disagree with that? Yeah, I disagree with that. I, I you know, I think. I think that, that what we should want is a growing and dynamic economy that can advance uh, prosperity to as many people as possible. There, there is, there is an, uh, no better jobs program than a growing economy. We've seen that very clearly uh, over the past several years as the labor market has become tighter and tighter. The uh, uh, employment rate for disabled workers has increased by something like 20% over the last five years. Uh, we are seeing that it's much easier for people who were incarcerated to find jobs. We are seeing that vulnerable workers are able to um, get their foot on the ladder and, 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 and climb in a way that they haven't been for, for many, many years. We are seeing the benefits of a hot economy reach the least skilled and least experienced workers. Wage growth for the bottom 10% of workers is faster than wage growth at the median um, and, and, and on average. The unemployment rate for high school dropouts is further below its long-run average than the unemployment rate for college graduates. So we are seeing direct evidence that a hot economy and a growing economy and a dynamic economy uh, spreads its benefits to the most vulnerable workers in society, to the least skilled workers, to the least experienced workers, to the lowest paid workers. That is something that it's extremely difficult for, for public programs to do. Um, so we should be we should want a, a dynamic economy. We should want a growing economy. And not just for the kind of abstract reasons of long-run prosperity, because that is helpful to workers today. But we also need to have good public policy in place to help buffer and ensure against the uh, the downside to that dynamism. We should have a strong social safety net so that no one falls too far. And we should have programs that push economic opportunity to the places it needs to go so that everybody can benefit from from an economy uh, that's growing and that's dynamic. a couple ideas in each of those points, the uh, the safety net and also pushing, making, pushing growth to where to parts of the country which aren't growing. Well, we need smart unemployment insurance, uh, for example, that uh, that uh, is designed to not keep people, uh, you know, locked into to being unemployed, but to, but to, but to kind of propel them back into the labor market uh, when they when they lose their job involuntarily due to some sort of disruptive process, you know, either from technology or globalization or from whatever. Um, we need uh, uh, public policies to to make work pay, to draw people into the workforce. Um, if, uh, if changes in the economy mean that men without a high school diploma can't command the type of wages they used to be able to command, then we need to have good earning subsidies in place, uh, like the Earned Income Tax Credit, to, to supplement the, the, the wages they can get in the labor market to make sure that, that, that they, don't, they don't live in poverty. Uh, so that, you know, they're, 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 what about the like these areas? Maybe they're not as maybe they're not as massive as what you know some people say, but sort of the parts of the economy that are struggling. How do you help those parts of the economy? Do you move uh, Do you move the uh, commerce department? Uh, you know, federal agencies around. Do you uh, create 
government-funded tech hubs. There's a lot of ideas like that to create to help these areas sort of catch up. In so a way, because you know, they've they've stopped catching up. I'm somewhat uh, so. Uh, look, I mean, certainly places have don't don't catch up as quickly as they used to. I'm uh, I'm 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 somewhat skeptical of these sorts of you know kind of you know place based interventions. Um, certainly, when done by the federal government, you know, I think I think what we want is to is to push economic opportunity to workers in those locations, um, and uh, uh, you know, some of the things that I just mentioned uh, could be helpful there. Um, Good programs that can allow people to train uh, for new jobs, uh, perhaps in new industries, so they can command higher wages. Do train? Do we? Do we? Are there training programs that work? Because it almost seems like boilerplate. We need to retrain these workers, and people say, "Well, you know, name one that actually works." Yeah. So and we train people for new jobs, the, adults. The existing uh, suite of programs don't work that well, and, and it kind of has become boilerplate. There's so there's some new programs that are that are based on. Uh, uh, kind of work-based learning models that, that do seem to show some promise where where the training takes place at a business and where a business is determining what skills the, their workers need. So you're, so you're in effect allowing uh, labor demand. You're allowing market forces to determine, you know, in effect the curriculum of, of training programs rather than relying on um, uh, you know bureaucrats somewhere in, in, in a state capital or, 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 or in Washington to do that and, and, and those have shown some promise and you know there's a lot of work to be done to to you know uh, uh, see if they if they really have the potential that, that we think they have right now but but I'm reasonably optimistic about that and finally what would you tell policymakers not to do or tell them to avoid? Kinds of things maybe you think they're they're currently sort of on the on the plate, but don't do that. Well, a lot of the policy proposals you know, that have, that have surfaced and been bubbled up due to populism are very destructive. You don't want to wall off the United States. You don't want to to engage in protectionism. You know the the kind of current uh, protectionist regime that we've put in place against China, the the the, the tariffs, if anything, seem to have actually reduced. Manufacturing employment to some degree. Even the protected industry is seeing um, uh, some short-term employment losses. To say nothing of the fact that Americans on the whole are made worse off by by those sorts of tariffs. Uh, you don't want to demonize immigrants. You don't want to stoke racial animosity. That is bad for long-term prosperity. Uh, for the United States to to have prosperity over the long term. Social cohesion is necessary, and populist. I think some people, their idea for social cohesion is to make it more homogenous. Sure, yeah, and um, that's obviously problematic because we're not at that point. Um, I mean, first of all, it's morally and ethically problematic, but 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 set aside moral and ethical concerns and focus just on on uh, the, the economics of it. Uh, you know, that ship has sailed, and um, uh, you know the, the the types of measures we've seen. Um, serve to stoke that animosity and to... Do we need more low-skilled workers from other countries? It's, one, it's fine. If someone who's a computer scientist wants to come here, even though I know there are some restrictions who don't want that that either, but at the, but sort of, you know, maybe we should all read. You know, we don't want other countries' high school dropouts, do we? Well, you know, I, I think we can have a reasonable debate about the number of green cards we issue in a given year and and the characteristics of people to whom those green cards are issued and reasonable people can disagree about that but that's not what we see what we've seen is um uh, you know a lot of fear-mongering and a lot of demonizing and um uh, you know efforts that are 
clearly designed to to you know kind of create an us versus them mentality among um, uh, native-born white Americans, and that's and that's deeply troubling, and it's not good for society in the long run, and it's not good for uh, for for long-term prosperity. On the on the left, you know, you see frustration with the elites manifesting itself in a desire to take resources from the elites and to uh, proliferate entitlement programs. So you want free child care. You want to eliminate student debt. You want to make college free. Uh, you want free health care. Uh, and in order to finance that, you want to institute wealth taxes uh, that are that are really kind of punitive and 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 draconian. You know that's not good for for long term prosperity either. To uh, to allow the entitlement state to proliferate uh, and to punish success. Um, so I think on both sides of the aisle, the the policies that are that are bubbling up from this populist moment are very harmful. So if I'm talking to a politician, I think I want to say, don't do that stuff. And uh, uh, you know, if we could if we could all agree on that, then we'd be in a better place than we are right now. My guest today has been Michael Strain. Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.